And let's turn in our Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 10 this evening. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, we want you to be able to follow along with us this evening. And so there are men coming up the aisle right now. And if you just kind of get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with your own eyes. Well, while they're doing that, that's uh, in the spirit of uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, somebody wished me a happy Thanksgiving this morning. It's I'm, I'm glad it, I'm not the only one that does that. So I wished her a happy Hanukkah and we had a great conversation, really. But there was a, a true story. Calvary pastor was talking about um, a couple. Uh, the husband had uh, told him that on the 25th wedding anniversary uh, between he and his wife, uh, you think something romantic is going to happen and all. And she said, hey, we've been married 25 years. And then she paused and she said, if I'd have shot you when I wanted to, I'd be getting out about now. <laughs> the dangerous crowd. You guys enjoyed that just a little too much. How about this? Just one more. The woman's husband had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, and yet she had stayed by his bedside day and night. And then one day when he finally came out of it, he motioned for her to come near. And, and so she sat by him and he whispered, his eyes are full of tears. And he said, you know what? He said, you've been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you stayed right here. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? And her heart's just filled with warmth. And she says, what, dear? And he said, I think you're bad luck. <laughs> now, that's a one-sided marriage right there. Some of you recognize it. That's real. Paul knew what he was talking about. Singleness can be a gift if that's a gift that God has given to you. Second Samuel chapter 10. And it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. And so David sent by the hand of his servants a message of, of comfort to this son concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. We're told here very, very clearly that what David does here, his motive is recorded for us in Scripture. What he does, he does out of the kindness of his heart. To repay a kindness that Nahash had evidently done for him sometime in the past. There's no biblical record of the kindness that this king of Ammon had shown to David, but it doesn't seem unlikely that it was something that was done for David during the 10 year period that he was fleeing from uh, King Saul in the wilderness 20 years earlier. So a kindness had been done to him. This man had a warm place in his heart and in David's heart, and thus his family did likewise. Ammon is what is modern day uh, Jordan today. And so he sends now this group of men, a delegation from Israel to communicate uh, their sorrow and, and all related to the passing of, of the father. Now, a transition from one king to another in the ancient world, that could be a, a very difficult time. It could be a time of great uncertainty uh, for that nation on a lot of levels. But one of the levels that was always uncertain when there was a reign change uh, for these ancient kingdoms was would the nations that had an alliance with our nation based upon the former king continue to honor those alliances related to the son. And so David, it would appear that he sends this group of ambassadors from Israel to Ammon to accomplish three things, all of them peaceful, to comfort Hanan in the loss of his son, to congratulate him on the lofty position that he had attained to by virtue of his father's death here, and then also to communicate that Israel desired to continue a peaceful relationship 
that they had with Ammon through the father and that that would now continue uh, through the son. And so uh, that even though Israel was far more powerful than the Ammonites at this point in time, David would not use this time of transition and instability uh, to attack them or to use it in any way to uh, advance himself. And so uh, this was what was being communicated in much the same way we see even today when an official dies or where the na- a nation has an alliance with the United States of America, a high official uh, dies in that nation, and we will send a very prominent delegation or uh, to that nation to communicate uh, the communicate our continued alliance with that nation and our support of that nation, and that's exactly what has happened here. These ambassadors that would have been sent would have been among the most distinguished men in Israel. Uh, doubtless very spiritual men, men of high position, probably men that had a uh, close personal relationship with David. And so this is the stature of the men that David has sent uh, to convey this particular message. And we're told here that David and his uh, act of kindness here is misjudged by the princes of the counselors of uh, Hanan, the new king. And the princes, verse 3, of the people of Ammon, they said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he sent these comforters to you? That's not what's going on. Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and the next thing he's going to do is attack it militarily and overthrow it? So David's heart is completely innocent in what he's done. And they wrongly accuse him of sending these servants in order to spy the land out and and is kind of an advanced force for doing intelligence for a full-scale invasion. Now, they're judging David, and they're judging his uh, motive. They're judging his heart. And and they're coming to the, the exact opposite conclusion concerning David that they ought to have come to. They couldn't be more wrong. It's interesting, the Bible declares Jesus himself to us in the Sermon on the Mount as Christians. He said that we are not to judge lest we be judged. There's a judgment that we are free to judge. We are free as Christians to judge another person's actions and come to conclusions about the life that they're living. We are free to judge another person's word. We are free to judge the fruit that comes out of another person's life and to come to a conclusion about what kind of a person or a tree that they are by virtue of that fruit. But what is being forbidden by Jesus is we are not to we are forbidden to judge a person's motives behind an action or their thinking behind an action, because that's something that we can't know. Only God can know that. And so he tells us that we aren't, uh, are not to do this kind of thing. I don't know what your <laughs> success rate is when you have violated Jesus' commandment not to judge and you've decided uh, to look at a particular situation and read uh, mountains of additional things into it in terms of judging the person, how close you are in, in your judgment. But typically, I find that as I've done that in the past, I am literally 95 wrong 95 percent of the time it's just not a thing that we're uh, very good at and so uh, jesus uh, forbids that now this is a great example in the bible of what happens when people violate god's commandment not to judge it hearts or motives in this way Because by the time this wrong judgment by these counselors to the king runs its full course, 50,000 men are going to be dead. Because a group of numbskulls read into something that didn't exist there at all and led two nations, two entire nations, to war over it. It makes you wonder, and you don't have to wonder too much if you're a student of history, how many wars have been started in human history over this kind of thing? And how many young men and, and other people's lives have been uh, and blood have been shed over this kind of judgment? 
of of one another. So Hanan listens to their counsel and uh, he believes their wrong judgment of David here. And so he proceeds to shame these ambassadors. He's going to make an example of them. And so Hanan then took David's servants. Remember, these are uh, probably very spiritual men. They come from a culture that is dominated by the law of Moses. That is a very, very modest culture. And so he takes them and he shaved off, first of all, half their beards. Doesn't mean he gave them a trim. It means he shaved them one side over and left the other beard. Now, we think about that as, as Americans. We think about that probably only exclusively and cosmetically, how oh, that would look terrible. But there was more to this than that. In the ancient world and certainly among the Jews, a beard was something that men could grow. Women couldn't grow it. So it was a symbol of a person's manhood. And so what he does by cutting half the beard off is it's an attack on their manhood. Look what we're doing to you and there's nothing you can do to stop us. Would have infuriated these men. It's a terrible, terrible insult. And then as if it couldn't get any worse, I mean, the, in, in shaming them, he cut off their garments, their war robes in those days, cut them in the middle, right at their buttocks, and, and then he sent them away. So he cuts their robe off right where their bottom's sticking out. He cuts the robe all the way around in absolute humiliation, and it wouldn't have been it would have been bad enough if he had done it in the palace. But then you notice there in verse four, he sends him out into the city for the whole city to watch. This is what we do with people who come in to spy out the land in order to abuse us. Terrible, terrible thing that they uh, that they do to to them there. Terrible decision based upon a wrong judgment of David and, and these men. Now, they send them away disgraced. This would be the equivalent of, like, the emperor of Japan coming to the United States and us doing that to him. Do you think the nation of Japan would be upset if we treated their ambassador that way? They would, and I'll tell you why. Because an ambassador in those days and in this day didn't just represent themselves. An ambassador represented the nation. What you did to them, you were doing to Japan. What these men did to these ambassadors, they were doing to David. They were doing to the entire population of Israel. They were doing to Israel itself. It was the equivalent of a declaration of war. And David understood it to be that. That was the provocation. That they were making here. And I think that this lesson, I mean, we could stop right here and it would be a profitable night because of how prevalent this kind of thing is in the body of Christ. This incident instructs us about how careful we need to be about who we make our counselors in life. And who we make our influencers in life. Who we surround ourselves with. And that it's vitally important that we do not surround ourselves with people who are judgmental, overly suspicious, that their first thought is to think the worst of another person. They have a fault-finding spirit. In other words, they, they can find a fault where it doesn't exist. That kind of friend, that kind of relative, that kind of brother or sister in the body of Christ, that kind of influencer will get you into trouble if you allow them to be an influencer and a, a, a counselor in your life. It is doubly important for this to be heeded by leaders because a leader's decisions are far more reach far reaching than the average person and a leader and really all of us very wise to surround ourselves with gracious people when in doubt grace extended to pe to people and it's not just 
the ungodly, the Ammonites, that need to be careful of this. God's people have to be careful of it too. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Philippians chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. He said, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good manners. Translation, if you don't think the people that you surround yourself with influence you, you're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. And this doesn't just apply to people. In those days, they didn't have 24-hour-a-day news channels. They didn't have radio. They didn't have books. They didn't have uh, music. They didn't have uh, mass publications. This kind of a thing occurred person to person. But we live in a time where we have to be careful because now we're able to be influenced by electronic means. People who are writing books, writing magazines. People who are communicating on the radio, communicating through music, communicating through television. And to sit down and to, and to run that through a grid and say, does this produce a gracious spirit in me in terms of processing the motives and the hearts of people or does this produce a hypercritical spirit in me where I am able to read mountains into a situation, into a sentence, into a gesture that has no basis in, in reality? And, and so it's a warning to any of us here tonight that are surrounded with those kinds of people or even have one or two of them in their life. Be very careful of that Influence. Well, David, he gets word of this, verse 5, and they told David, and so he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed, as you can imagine. And the king met them in Jericho, which was right between Israel and, and Ammon. I just, I keep thinking that I should call it Almond. So they're right there between Israel and, and Ammon. In the city of Jericho, and, and David said to them, wait at Jericho till your beards have grown and then return. You've experienced enough shame. You've been shamed in front of the nation of Ammon. I don't want you to come home to Jerusalem and experience further shame. Basically, he's releasing them from their responsibilities for a time as ambassadors for all of this to be made right. And then he, they can return in an unshameful way to Jerusalem. And when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and they hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the, Syri- the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, all uh, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Now, here is, is David visits these ambassadors. It's interesting. He doesn't declare war on the people of Ammon. This thing is so weird to him. Uh, it, 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 you know, there, there are events that happen in life that you just look at, and they set you so far back that you just can't understand it. And he doesn't know whether a terrible mistake has been made or what in the how, what could possess a group of people to respond to a gesture in this way. And so David gives them time to make the situation right. And he takes care of what he has to do with his diplomats there and, and, and all. And, and, he, and he waits on them to see what in the world they're going to do next. Maybe they're going to make it right. Maybe it's just a, a terrible misunderstanding. Doesn't make any sense at all. And so David gives them the time to do the right thing. And David doesn't initiate war with them. But he doesn't have long to wait before he realizes what's on their heart. Because they begin to gather allies to themselves. Hiring mercenary armies to then take on uh, Israel. And so the people of Ammon, what they do here is they compound their sin. When, when we have sinned against another person and done wrong to them, there's a very simple solution to that. It will require humility. It will be an affront to our pride, which is a good thing. 
But when we sinned against somebody, what the Bible says that we need to do is to go to them, confess our sin to them, make it right before God, make it right with them, ask for their forgiveness, and what can I do to bring restitution here and restoration to the relationship? And that's how we handle a sin when we have sinned against the other, other person. That's how, when a person does that, I mean, it's well on its way to being resolved. And it's only pride that will keep us from, from doing that. It's a hard thing, but it, it needs to be done. And what the people of Ammon do, and it's not uncommon even among God's people, they refuse to admit their wrong. And they choose to escalate the situation by drawing in all manner of other people who have no business getting involved in this fight and taking sides. And now they're going to make a real war out of it. I wonder how many church splits God watches all around the world that have this at its core. Because someone has done wrong, they have refused to do the right thing. Rather than do the right thing, they begin to marshal all kinds of power brokers in the church, people of influence now, and they're going to fight this other person head on. It's a disaster, but it happens all of the time. And so they know that they can't defeat Israel on their own militarily. They're going to have to draw all of these other people in. So they hire them. They're mercenary armies. And David knew this was a de- declaration of war. He has no choice now but to fight the war that they're challenging him to. And so he sends out, verse 7, when he hears of it, he sends out all of his army and he sends his great general Joab. Uh, to lead that army out into battle. And then the people of Ammon, they came out and they put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And then the Syrians, the allies of Zobah, Beth, Rebosh, Ishtab, and Maacah, were by themselves in the field. So here is Israel, their whole army is here, and they got the Ammonites on one side over here, and they've got the, the Syrians behind them. In other words, there's no front. They, they're fighting a, a, a battle with two fronts opened. So there's no front and a rear. There's no place to retreat. They're in a very, very hazardous uh, position militarily. So this is is the condition that they find themselves. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, here was his battle plan. He chose some of Israel's best and he's going to lead them into battle. And he put them in battle array against the Syrians. You would think he would put his best against the Ammonites, but he doesn't. The Syrians are mercenaries. They're fighting for money. They're going to be far less willing to shed their blood over this battle that has nothing to do with them. So Joab says, I'm going to put my best against them. That's our greatest shot at at demoralizing them uh, the quickest. And so he puts them in that place. And then the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So he he devises this battle plan that is very, very wise, but it has um, the ability to be flexible or to be fluid once the battle uh, begins. And then this is very interesting concerning Joab in verse 12, his encouragement uh, to the troops before they fought. He said, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. Well, we're tracking with him that far. That is a great rallying cry for soldiers all through the ages. And then he said, and may the Lord Yahweh Jehovah do what is good in his sight. He commits the entire battle to the Lord. Now, we don't see a lot of marks of spirituality in Joab's life as we follow him through as as David's general. So there can be the tendency to think that he was just purely this uh, carnal guy. And he does make a lot of bad decisions. You know, murder's a bad decision. 
So he's, he's, he's got some pretty rough edges to him, but there's a little something that's happening between him and God here, and we get a little glimpse of it there in, uh, uh, in, in verse 12, and I think it's valuable. And so Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and as he makes that thrust at their line with uh, the best of Israel's troops, they broke, they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, and they entered into the city, evidently a walled city for protection. And so Joab returned from the people of Ammon, and he went to Jerusalem. And so this great battle was fought, and uh, a great victory given to the children of Israel by the Lord. Well, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. So now their pride has been hurt. So now you got a battle in this situation that can so often work between people, where not only is there now the bad blood between this person and this person, but that thing gets resolved there, however imperfectly, and then the, pers- the people that got drawn into the battle that was none of their business, now they've been offended. And so now they want to fight. And this is the way this stuff all works through. Even God's people all of the time. And so they, they've been defeated. They can't stand for this loss of faith. Face, And so they gather together now to fight Israel on their own. And then Hadad-Ezer sent and he brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. And they came to Helam and Shobach. The commander of Hadad-Ezer's army went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan into the land of Ammon, and he came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David, and they fought, against, uh, they fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and he struck Shobach the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadad-Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. And so the Syrians uh, were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore, I would guess so. So uh, the lesson learned. How many tens of thousands of people dead? Because of misjudging the heart and the motive of another person. Chapter 11. Now in chapter 11 we have one of the record of the really the darkest stain I think on uh, David's life and his ministry. And his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and then his subsequent murder of her husband. A man by the name of Uriah in an attempt to cover up uh, that, uh, that adultery. And I think that. Surely one of the great proofs of the divine inspiration of the scriptures is the fact uh, that the Bible and the Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, uh, doesn't whitewash the saints of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but just lays things out the way that they are. Uh, if this was all edited and done by man and all, and every, a lot would be edited out. Probably this chapter would have been edited out to save, save David here. I wish that what David did <clears throat> never happened. And uh, I wish the chapter wasn't in the Bible, not because it did happen and it wasn't included, but just that it would have uh, never happened. But it's, ha- it's recorded in the scriptures uh, for our instruction. There are some of us in this room that we will look at David's temptation and his mishandling of his temptation tonight. And you'll recognize every single bit of it and have great compassion upon David for all of his sin. You will recognize the same capacity within yourself, at least to some degree, as a descendant of Adam and Eve. And then there'll be others that look at David, and I I don't condemn it at all, who will look and... um, have trouble with David, you know, and the rest of their life over the issue. But the fact of the matter is the Bible, and in looking at any of these characters and any of their failures, the Bible tells us to take heed when we think we stand, lest we fall. 
So this is included in the scriptures, not that we would just write this off and say, that could never happen to me. I'm incapable of ever doing anything like this. The Bible says, no, you ought to pay attention to this. Because uh, when you think that you can't do that, uh, that, that's when you've got a potential of getting blindsided by just such a thing. And so we want to, to take it in that kind of a spirit. David has been the king over Judah. For about 20 years, by the time this happens, he's king over all of Israel for about 13 years. He's approximately 50 years old at the time. That's fair. That's getting up there for the ancient uh, world. And uh, so very, very significant, I think, for us to understand and that sometimes we tend to think that sexual sin is a plague among the youth, but it really has no kind of you know, problem in the life of older people. I could introduce you to some older people before this. I think it's limited that way. That all goes to the wayside when we're either dead or raptured. So God has really blessed David mightily as a king. It's a time of great, great prosperity in Israel. Great material blessing. David is literally on top of the world. And very significantly, uh, David is very much a man who loved God and also a deeply, deeply spiritual man. But, I, but one of the things that this passage teaches us is that no matter how deeply a man or a woman may love God, no matter how spiritual a man or woman might be, no one can handle a temptation the way that David handles it and have any hope of standing in the face of that temptation. Two great examples in terms of temptation in the Old Testament. Number one, Joseph, the book of Genesis. And his life teaches us how to handle, successfully handle temptation. This teaches us how not to handle temptation. Both of them are very valuable. But when you put the two of them together, we have tremendous instruction in our lives as God's people for how to uh, properly stand in the midst of temptation and, and uh, uh, how to handle it. So we say, how did this happen? How does this kind of, uh, of thing happen in the life of a child of God? Well, here are the circumstances. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, he sent them out to battle, and they destroyed the people of Ammon, but besieged Rabbah, which was apparently a walled city, was a walled city that the Ammonites had fled behind. It was the last city uh, that, that was needed to be taken to um, produce an utter defeat of the Ammonites. Apparently, when the children of Israel had fought against the Ammonites and the Syrians and had defeated them in the earlier chapter, and then the Syrians then mounted an attack against Israel, Apparently, that defeat of the Syrians had ended late in the year. And so the rains were coming. And when it's tough to fight in a battle, it's tough to keep your army fed. It's tough to keep the animals involved fed. So what the kings would do is they would just kind of call a timeout for the winter and, and go back to their uh, nations. And they would then resume the battle in the spring when food was more plentiful for both man and beast. So apparently they've gone back now and as spring has, has, uh, has surfaced, they have resumed their battle against the Ammonites and now endeavoring to take the, that final city of, of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so he remains uh, at a time in the year when kings go out to battle, springtime, instead of leading the, his nation in battle, David chose to remain in Jerusalem, sent his forces, his general out and, and all uh, to fight instead of going out uh, himself. Translation of that, because of that, David found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. We ask ourselves as we kind of do an autopsy on this failure to say, how did this happen? How does this happen even today? It all began with a man of God being in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Why was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? Because David had ceased to be busy about God's call upon his life. So he was now going to serve God on his own terms. When he wanted to serve God, how he wanted to serve God, I mean, when he felt like serving God, he's been fighting battles for the Lord for 30 years. Surely a case could be laid for the fact that after all of this time, surely I've paid my dues and I can begin to relax at this point in time in my life. And it was a terrible thing for him to do. And there are a lot of Christians who feel that way about their service to the Lord. They're older now. And they feel like they've paid their dues. And now they feel that they can serve God on their terms if they serve him at all. There's a problem with that, though. The Bible teaches that the callings and the giftings of God are without repentance. We're not to stop until God tells us to stop. The decision that David made here was a decision that David wasn't free to make. That was a decision that only God was to make concerning his life and our life, too. I think one of the biggest benefits of Christian service, Christian ministry, is not just all of the good things that God does through our lives for other people. But one of the most important things about Christian service in our life is all of the trouble it keeps us out of. Christian ministry is not as one sided as we think that it is. God has a calling upon each one of our lives. God has gifted each one of us as Christians. And if I decide as a Christian to abandon his calling or ignore his calling and never enter into it at all, then I am going to have time in my life that is supposed to be going into holy things, sanctified things for the advancement of the kingdom of God that are, no, that are not going there any longer. And thus that time is going to become idle time. Time that's under my own control in idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. Ministry is important because it keeps us busy in ways that God knows we need to be kept busy. And so for Christians, ministry isn't an option for us. We need to be in the battle we need it to develop our character. We need it to keep us busy and to keep us out of trouble. Now, the key phrase to all of this in this whole tragic chain of events. Let me return to this. Let me just be very pointed about this. If you sit here tonight and you don't know what your calling is. And you are not giving your life away for the advancement of the kingdom somewhere in relation to God's calling upon your life and in alignment with the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given to you, you will end up a casualty. It's just going to happen. And it's, and it's crazy. One of the things that's a little bit frustrating for me is in, in passages like this, people listen and it's, a, it's, it's like these chapters are in the Bible for sermon fodder for Sunday nights. As if these words are not going to have the final say in all of human history. As if these words and these principles that come from God's word are not going to outlive the created heavens and the earth. They are. And over and over and over again, you, you, we come to discover in people's lives that they get into so much trouble because they are self-directing their life. And time that is intended for their own good, our own good, intended to be, be used in this kind of way. It all started there with David. I don't care what, if, God, if you're in an age and God said, all right, you're out, you can retire, you can whatever on it, fine, that's between you and God. But for all the rest of us, we need to be busy about the Lord's business. Now, the key phrase that 
leads to all else in the I'm really not I'm not mad at you, by the way, I'm just impassioned about we're, we're not having a problem with. And by the way, there's a need in the nursery. There's none of that going on. I just feel it just this is I know what kind of trouble serving the Lord has kept me out of that. That's why he got me doing what I'm doing 18 hours a day. I'd be the biggest headache in this world and whatever church I was involved in if he didn't keep me as busy as he did. So the whole key phrase, let me say this for the sixth time. To everything else in this whole tragic chain of events that's found in is found in that last sentence of verse one. But David remained at Jerusalem. God had called David to fight. The kings of Israel were called to go out before Israel and to fight her battles for Samuel chapter eight, verse 20. That's what God had called David to do. And so spring was the time of battle and David took a break from the battle and warfare. If David had been where God wanted him to be, he would have never encountered this temptation. And it's as simple as that. Being where God has called us to be keeps us from being tempted by so many things in in life. Ministry for the child of God is not an option. It is important for our purity and uh, and for God's reputation. Now notice the temptation itself in verse two. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. So it's kind of probably late in the afternoon. It's hot in that time of the year. Probably got a warm spring day. So he takes that afternoon nap and all arises from his bed. He walks on the roof of the king's house over there. The, the palace, the, the roofs are flat because they're used as extension of, of living, living quarters. So he's walking on the roof of, of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And so obviously naked. And the woman was, to compound the problem, very beautiful to behold. If she looked like Ma Kettle, the temptation ends right there. There's nothing. But here she is, just absolutely beautiful to, to behold here. So we continue our exploration here of how did this happen? How in the world does this, uh, this happen? And, and all, and I, I think it's important to realize that David has set himself up for this fall by playing with sin for many, many years. Long before David ever saw Bathsheba bathing, he had been playing with lust and playing with sin for decades at this point in his life. God had said very clearly in the law of Moses concerning the kings, you are not to multiply wives to yourself. And David has a whole palace full of them at this point in time. And earlier as we were looking at his life and he's marrying these wives and people ask, it looks like he's getting away with this. How can he get away with this? How can God wink at this and blink at this? And, and, uh, and all in David's life, nobody's getting away with anything. Just because God doesn't judge a sin the instant we commit it, just because God allows a period of time for us to realize the sin that we've entered into and then to come of our own free will to God, confess it as sin and repent of that and, and then be forgiven doesn't mean that God is endorsing the sin while he watches and gives us room to repent. And so here he is, he's playing with sin, he's playing with sin. Every time he sees a looker, he marries her and adds him to what is essentially his harem. Willful disobedience, just pure and simple. And David begins to think, and I'll tell you, you don't have to be a powerful man. You don't have to be a rich man. You don't have to be a king to think it. You don't even have to be a man to think it. But evidently, he thinks he's a special case. That God has given all of these commandments to other men who really need just one wife as a king. Or they can't support a, a, a whole bunch of them. But God knows I need all of these women in my life because God knows the kind of pressures I'm under. 
the kind of relaxation I need is a king. And he begins to misread the space that God gives him to repent. And all the time, this thing, by the hour, by the day, by the week, by the month, this thing is closing in on, on David here. How the world conducts itself is not our standard for right and wrong. The Bible is our standard. And it doesn't matter whether we're a king or a peasant or CEO of a Fortune 500 company or whatever at the other end of the spectrum. God's word is God's word for every single one of us. And so God continued to be gracious with David, even in his disobedience, gave him favor, gave him blessings, gave him victory. And apparently David began to think that because God was continuing to anoint him or to bless him, that his disobedience must have been no big deal to God. God, maybe even God is okay with it. And it's a terrible self-deception. James wrote by the Spirit of God, and he says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And that's what the lie that David bought. He indulged his lusts, but he thought he had everything under control. I can play around with sin a little bit. I can live dangerously, but I would never go over the line and commit adultery. And I would never then ever commit murder to, to cover my adultery. And a fall like this in a person's life very, very rarely occurs uh, quickly. It usually, is, there's been a long period of sloppy living uh, that precedes it. And the whole time a person's being set up for a great fall. Why did David keep marrying all of these wives? What would have happened if he had had just one wife? It would have forced him to become disciplined in his area of weakness. And his area of weakness was women, very clearly. It would have forced him to become disciplined in an area of his life that he desperately needed to become disciplined in, in order that his entire life and ministry wouldn't be brought to shame in this way. So how does this happen? How did this happen? After an afternoon nap, David's walking on that flat roof of the palace, and he looks down, lower elevation, Uriah's house is a little bit lower, looks over the wall, and then he sees her, and uh, as he sees her, lust begins to develop within his heart, and it teaches us the importance of being careful about what we put before our eyes. We live in a very immodest culture. We cannot control, oftentimes, we cannot control something that would produce or incite lust within our hearts. We can't control every exposure to that because of the way the culture is. It's so prevalent in the culture. It's used as a mechanism for sales and all kinds of things. But what we can control is the second look. There's a difference between temptation and sin here. David, when he does the first look, the first look is just the temptation. He hasn't sinned yet. He's just been tempted. It's the second look. It's when, this, when his look turns into a gaze and now it's long and now he begins to think about all of this. Now it turns into sin. It's interesting in the book of James, and it's one of my favorite pictures of this. It talks about, in James chapter 1, it talks about uh, how sin is conceived within us. And James uses that uh, word of human reproduction to describe it. Conception in the human body occurs with the uniting of the egg and the seed. The egg from the woman, the seed from the man. And so those two come together, now you have conception. What happens in terms of the conception of sin in the child of God is when two things are united. And the two things are the temptation to be sin, to, to sin is united with my will. But I'd like to point it out this way. Here is 
my will. And here is that first glance at Bathsheba or the temptation. If that temptation hits my will and I say to God, God, this thought is not worthy of you and it's not worthy of me as one of your children. I reject that. I'm not going to give any room to it. There's no conception because there hasn't been a uniting of the two things. It's only a temptation at that point. We can't help being tempted in this world. That's what happens in this world. But when temptation becomes sin, that temptation comes, it hits my will, and my will says, yes, let's give some thought to that. And that's what David does here. And now his will is united with the temptation, and he is on his way. And it teaches us, and certainly as men, but I think all of us, We have to be careful about what we allow before our eyes because what we see is very instrumental in in producing uh, that kind of stimulation to passion. And so David, he he sent verse three and he inquired about this woman. So his response to the temptation is he begins an inquiry, an investigation into it. Find out who this woman is. Maybe she's not married. Maybe she's a servant woman. Maybe she is uh, single. I can add her to my uh, my harem here or something. And so he he makes an inquiry related uh, to the woman, which is a disaster. I mean, no one can bring sin that represents our greatest area of weakness, investigate that sin. Oh, I'm just writing a book. Investigate that sin and then think that we have any any hope of standing at all. So the longer he he considers this temptation, the stronger the temptation got until the flesh and the and sin are now completely in control and, and they've taken over his life. There's a rapidity in these verses that that really markedly resembles how what this kind of sequence takes within our lives. Verse two, he saw verse three, he inquired verse four, he sent verse five, he lay. It happens just that fast. He crosses that line and now I don't care how spiritual you are. Or I am. There is a line that we cross. And once we cross it, the Holy Spirit is no longer in control of our life. But our passion, our lust, our desire, whatever that sin might be, that is now in control of our life. I remember as a a young Christian, um, Firefighters for Christ used to put out a series. Hopefully they still do. A tape series uh, by... Uh, Bob Vernon, who was an assistant police chief with LAPD. And it was called True Masculine Role. It was a very good series. And I remember he did one of those studies on temptation. And he talked about the fact that if you and I stand in front of a Coke machine and it says a Coke, one dollar, insert four quarters. You can insert the first quarter and you're okay. You can insert the second quarter and you're okay. You can insert the third quarter and you're okay. But if you insert that fourth quarter, you have no hope of stopping that coat from sliding down that chute and coming out of of that uh, space at the bottom. And so what we have to do is to set up in our lives, set our lives up in a way, because for most of us, sin has a pattern. This kind of sin has a pattern. It happens in certain places, at certain times of the day or night, around certain people, when you're in a certain mood, in a certain and a certain, and you fill in the blanks. Those are the four quarters. And it's so important for us to set up our lives in such a way that not only do we never find ourselves standing in front of the Coke machine with four quarters in our pocket, but that we set up our lives to where it's impossible for that to happen and to get those quarters in all directions. Give it to a guy that's hitchhiking to Omaha. Send one of them off with a guy that's driving to Albuquerque. Give one of them to someone who's going to take a flight to Japan. Make sure that those things can't all come together and for that to happen. 
And because no matter how spiritual we are, no matter how much we love God, once that line is crossed, all there is is the sin and the regret afterwards. And to set up those kind of boundaries within our life, David doesn't do that. David just plows through the, the, the whole thing and, and, and he, he inquires. He's going to investigate this particular sin and just how it might work out. And someone said to him, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, David? Which, this, is, this is somebody's daughter, David. This is somebody's wife, David. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is the wife of one of your 30 mighty men in this army who happens to be out on a battlefield right now fighting for you and fighting in a battle that you should be out in the middle of. This is who you're being tempted to go to bed with. And not only that, David, but she is also the daughter of Eliam. And Eliam was one of the sons of Ahithophel, who was one of David's closest friends and advisors. And so David is now being tempted here to sleep with one of his great soldier's wife and also to sleep with the granddaughter of what is probably his best friend. This is, and they're warning him. They're trying to get him to stop. Daughter, uh, husband, I mean wife, trying anything they can to get him to reconsider what he's, what he's doing here. They're trying to tell him to stop, but he won't stop. He just blows right through it. And that's the interesting thing about these kind of seasons. Nobody that I've ever known, and I've known this to happen quite a few times, nobody ever looks back at a chapter like this in their life, and they look back and say, God never warned me. God never put up a stop sign. We always look back and we see, God was trying to stop me for so long that I wasn't willing to listen to these warnings that other people were speaking to me. And David then sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, which means she had had her period and she was not pregnant. And then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And so she sent word and told David and said, I am with child. David just blows through all of it and he just takes her into the palace and he commits adultery with her. And then the consequences, consequences of it, verse 5, she ends up pregnant, forming David that that night of, of lust and passion has produced a child. Bathsheba has to be very concerned because adultery is a capital crime under the law of Moses. And she had to figure they won't kill David, he's the king. But what happens to someone like me who doesn't have the power of a king? So she's concerned on an awful lot of levels to say nothing about her marriage, which we'll get into uh, next week. This passage, verse five, teaches us that there are consequences to sin. And I will tell you, I think it's just criminal that on television and movies and sitcoms and all these things that are produced, music and all, where all of this lust and sexual immorality is glamorized and glorified and put forward people like it's the way to live and they almost never show the consequences of it, the terrible consequences that people have to bear for the rest of their lives. I wish we could try these people for how they, what they do to our culture because of it. The Bible doesn't deny that sin is pleasurable. It is pleasurable. The Bible just simply says it's only pleasurable for a season. And that season is very short. And then the consequences come right on the heels of that pleasure. And I'll tell you, they'll gobble up all of the oxygen in the room. One of the things that this tells me about David is that he didn't think the consequences of his sin through ahead of time. He did not expect this pregnancy. Because there are consequences to sin. 
One of the greatest deterrents to sin in our lives as Christians is to stop before I commit the sin, not five seconds before I commit the sin, days and weeks and months before I'm tempted to commit the sin, and to ask myself, if I do this, what will it mean to God's reputation? What will it mean to my reputation? What will this do to my wife or to my husband? What will this do to my children? What will this do to my grandchildren? What will this do to my ministry? And it's one of the greatest things that we can do is to count that cost ahead of time and to realize when we do as a child of God, no sin could be worth all of that. And David failed to do it. Because the consequence takes him completely by surprise because now he's got to find a way to get out from under this. He never expected Bathsheba to end up pregnant. We're going to stop there tonight and we'll pick up David's attempt to cover up his sin uh, next week if the Lord tarries. This evening we want to close by enjoying the Lord's Supper. So if the worship team would come forward and the men would come forward, we'll get ready to serve the Lord's Supper to you this evening.